Welcome to another episode of the Golders Podcast. If you haven't already, click subscribe and look out for new episodes releasing every other Friday. We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with Dr. Kerry Bowley. Before we introduce today's guest, we want to mention our partnership with clothing company Capo. The meaning behind the brand runs much deeper. The northwest of England clothing brands strive to provide premium, aesthetic fitting, quality clothing at affordable prices. Check out their products at www.capouk.com and on Instagram at Capo UK. Now for today's guest. Here is a snippet of what to expect. Too many coaches I see go out and they run an activity or a drill, whatever word you use for it. They, they, they put it in and they run the exercise, but they don't coach it. You know, they don't, they don't teach, they're not coaching it. And anybody can do that. The better coaches are able to pick out what they wanna, they wanna teach and, and can teach it in their practices. So I think that's vitally, vitally important. I think it's important for young coaches to get around uh, coaches and learn, get a mentor, get to coaching schools, observe, go out and continue to learn, get on the internet. There's so much out there now that you can learn from the internet, but always be educating yourself. Um, I think it's really important. So those would be some of the, the key pieces of advice. We're excited to welcome Randy Waldrop onto today's episode of the Golders Podcast. Randy is currently the head coach for Nigeria women's national team, the Super Falcons, and will be leading them into the Women's World Cup in New Zealand and Australia in July of this year. He is also the head women's soccer coach at the University of Pitt and is the past president of National Soccer Coaches Association of America. Randy Waldron, welcome to the Golders Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, and it's great to reconnect and see you again. Absolutely. The first question that we ask every single guest is uh, to us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Well, you know, I think it can mean several things. But when I think of, obviously, gold, uh, you think of excellence, you know, and, and whatever it is that you're talking about, whether it be your business, your job, your family, you know, whatever. So when I think of gold dust and I see that as, as being uh, in the background there with you guys, you know, I look at that going, um, that's topping off a, a great season. Uh, that's topping off a great individual performance. Um, you know, I, I think of that when I think of gold dust and obviously your, your podcast, you know, you're sprinkling of an excellent podcast with this gold dust. And, and I know it's a little bit about uh, information and, and uh, you're seeing it in that vein, but always kind of look at it when it comes to mind for me. And I, I think of it in that way. It, it's it's topping off something that you've done that's been of excellence, you know. And um, so that's what that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Well, Randy, first question for me, obviously, for our listeners, can you share with us uh, what your formative years were like coaching soccer and how these experiences really steered you to become the head coach at the University of Pittsburgh and the Nigerian women's national team? 
Yeah, you know, I was really uh, blessed and fortunate in my early years as a coach to have some great mentors. And I think that's important for all young coaches, you know, have somebody that you can lean on and get some advice from. And, you know, I had some some coaches, my my youth coach uh, when I was playing was a gentleman named Simon Sanchez. And, and people aren't going to know him on, you know, the world stage, but he was one of those coaches that gave me the passion you know, for the game, uh, the love of the game. In in my local community, uh, football or soccer was was new and people didn't know about it. And he was the one kind of expert in the city uh, that had a background in it. So my love of the game, really, I have to attribute a lot of that to Simon Sanchez. And then as I got a little bit older and got into college, you know, I played at Midwestern State University for Howard Patterson and one of the things I think he kind of gave me without me knowing it at the time was I, I saw a, a a coaching structure, you know, how to plan a practice, how to organize a practice and, and the way we trained. I realized that years after the fact, you know, that that's kind of where I got that background. But then I've had some other coaches. I, I've been fortunate to be involved with U.S. soccer and coaching education and teaching our coaching license programs and that kind of thing. And you meet some of the best coaches in the world that way. But coaches like Shellis Hindman, um, Glenn Myronick, you know, before he passed away, the Jay Millers, the Lincoln Phillips. I, I was really blessed to have a lot of good mentors that kind of guided me because as a young coach, you know, I, I've changed a lot as a young coach. I thought that everything was going to be gauged on wins, wins and losses. You know, that that's all that was important is winning games to justify being a good coach. But having these kind of mentors and learning, and as we got older, you know, you realize that it's not just about winning, but you're developing players and you're developing players for life. It's not just, you're not going to be judged solely on your wins and your losses. So I was really blessed to have some good people in my life to help guide me. So how where did your coaching career begin? Well, quite early, actually, because um, right out of college, I was drafted. Um, we had a league back in those days um, when the NASL was going on. We had also a league called the ASL, the American Soccer League. So I was drafted out in Los Angeles uh, in the American Soccer League. But very quickly, um, when I got in, the league folded a year or two after I had been in the league. So I kind of had to go and do something, right? Um, had a wife and had a young son. And it was one of those things that um, – my family was in a family business uh, of manufacturing and building signs. Uh, so restaurant signs and those kind of things. And my entire family went into the business, but I knew that just didn't, you know, I'd worked there in the summer times and, and, you know, all my life, you'd been around the shop growing up, learning the, the, the craft, but I just knew that wasn't for me. I knew I wanted to do something in the sport. And back in those days here in the U S um, which would have been, gosh, probably uh, late 70s, early 80s. Club soccer wasn't like it is today. There were no big clubs. You couldn't make a living coaching in the club scene. The only way you could really make a living was coaching in high school or coaching in college. There really wasn't all of these, these clubs to go to. So I had known that during my college career. So I got my degree in education because – my only pathway really was to go into the high schools and teach and coach if I wanted to make a living. So really after a, a brief pro career, uh, I jumped right into high school coaching 
and started out as a young coach. So I was probably in my very early 20s and um, coaching some players that I'm only five or six years older than. Uh, but I coached in the high schools, and that's kind of how I got my start. Um, and then I always knew, you know, I had this goal in my mind as, co- as a coach. I wanted to coach at the highest level I possibly could. So I knew I wasn't – didn't want to stay a high school coach all my life. So I already had a plan in, in place that I wouldn't spend more than five years in the high school because the next move I wanted to move to college. And sure enough, it worked out that way. About my fifth year, uh, Shellis Heinemann took over SMU and asked me to be his assistant. So I kind of moved from high school into the college scene. Uh, but that's that's kind of the start. And uh, back in those days, that's really the only way you could make a living doing it. What inspired you to become a coach and and specifically a coach of women's soccer teams? Well, I, I didn't go into it with the idea of coaching women. I've got to be honest and and, and say that up front. Um, I knew I wanted to coach because I just always kind of had that in my blood, the teaching, kind of being a captain and a leader of your, your youth teams. And I just – I knew that I, I wanted to stay in the game. Now, mind you, I would have loved to have played as long as I could have. I would have liked to have had a career playing a lot longer. Uh, so that was a difficult transition, kind of giving up playing and, and realizing that, you know, you've just got to go coach. Uh, but as soon as I got into coaching, um, I jumped right into the coaching schools and started, began taking my license. Uh, I wanted to be the best I could be as a, as a coach. And I actually started out coaching on the men's side. I had, um, youth teams that were boys. I, my high school team was was a boys team. And it was when I went to the University of Tulsa, which was my first Division One head coaching job. Um, back in those days, a lot of the college head coaching jobs, you, you coach both men and women. So that was maybe 1989. And that was my first experience coaching a women's team. And I, I took the job really to coach the men and the women just came along with it. Um, but once I got into it, then I realized at that level, there weren't a lot of good coaches on the women's side. Uh, and on the men's side, it was kind of a circle of same coaches being filtered around, you know, you'd lose a job and they would go, this, those same coaches would end up somewhere else. And it was at that time that I started having the ambition of doing some work with national teams, uh, because I was on staff of coaching education and and working with coaches teaching the license but i knew i someday would love to coach a national team and i just kind of came to the conclusion that the best path at the time was to get in on the women's side if i wanted to coach at the next level but it was a really i gotta be honest it was a really difficult decision because i'd always coach on the men's side and my fear was if i went on the women's side and spent a year or two and i didn't really like it I may find it a difficult time to get back on the men's side. So it was a really, it took me a couple of years to kind of make the decision to, to fully just go into the women's side. And then the other unique thing about it, quite honestly, was uh, it was about that time, mid nineties, I guess that the women's college scene really burst. A lot of big schools, big universities started investing money in women's programs more so than they were doing in the men's. And um, so it was also an opportunity to to make a, a, a better living. You know, financially, there was more money in it. So I made the decision to leave Tulsa and um, 
go start a brand new women's program at Baylor University. And uh, that's when I took the lead to go completely into the women's game. And once I did, to be honest, I have never looked back. I've never regretted it. Obviously, I still love the men's game, but I've never regretted making the move. And for me in my career, it was probably the best decision I ever made. Interesting. You know, the opportunities to coach male. And then I guess there was a, a ground swell to coach the women, uh, which has presented itself and you've run with it, which is fantastic. But what do you think are the most important skills and qualities for a coach of a women's soccer team? Yeah. And how do you how do you develop those skills and qualities in yourself? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think is probably important if there's young coaches out there listening, um, I don't do anything in terms of the training uh, differently than I would do with a men's team. And I, and I mean that in terms of the expectations and the standards and the work ethic and all of those things. Uh, I've never said, well, it's a women's program. Now I've got to go easier on them or I've got to change the way I train and prepare the team. The football part is the same. So the way I would train a men's team is the exact same way I would train a women's team. If I left today and went to, you know, a, a men's college program, the training aspect wouldn't be different. I think the things that for coaches that I had to learn over time and probably still learning a little bit, the differences um, that I found to be the greatest differences are more on the, the women's side, the relationships and, and how you um, relate to the players are more important and you have to manage a little bit more than on the men's side. And I guess it's just kind of a silly example, but I, I think on the guy side, you can go out to the pitch and train and two guys can get in an argument and, you know, and, and even get in an altercation in some instances. And at the end of practice, they're buddies again and they go off and they, you know, can go have a beer together or whatever. Um, and the women's side, the relationship part is more important and those things kind of linger and they carry. So I had to learn early on, um, that I had to uh, build those relationships more individually with the players and get to know them and, and learn a little bit more what made them tick, even more so that, than I had done on the men's side. And then understanding how to connect that into a team chemistry, making sure that those parts, because a lot of the things on the women's side in team chemistry is just not good players coming together and playing together. It's they have to get along on and off the field as well. So, you know, I, I think uh, we're, we're constantly trying to do, you know, team building activities and things that bring the team together, probably really more so than I ever did on the men's side. Not that it's not important on the men's side as well, um, but I think um, keeping an open dialogue, uh, getting feedback, because uh, again, as I said, I, I think so much of it is if the players on the in the women's game buy into what you're teaching, and they buy into you caring about them as people, not just because they're a good player or, or, or a bad player, but that you actually care about them, then I think you can go a long way in the women's game. Um, you, you'll, you'll get that 100% you know, support of them if you do that. So, so we're constantly trying to make sure we're checking on them, recognizing when maybe a good day, what might be a bad day, and understanding, especially for the players here at Pittsburgh that have class, you know, understanding that, you know, they may have exams coming up and, and there's 
there's other issues that could affect the way training goes for them. So just being more aware and more conscious of that, I think, uh, has been really important in the women's game. But one thing I have found with the women's game that I really embraced and I really love about the women's side is they they don't want to be treated different. They want the information. They want to be coached. They also want to be told uh, <laughs> when they're not doing well. They don't want they don't want you to sugarcoat that. They 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 want they want honesty, you know, as a coach. And but they're they're sponges for information. You know, they want the coaching because a lot of these players maybe now more now are, have come from clubs where they've had good youth coaches. But there's still some cases where a lot of them in their formative years just had parent coaches and didn't have the experts, so to speak, that a lot of the male players have. And you know, a lot of times I found at the college level, sometimes with the men's team, it was more like, yeah, yeah, coach, I already know all of this. I've got this, you know, whereas in the women's game, it's more of they they want the information. They want to study the game. They want to learn more about it. So I love that aspect of it. Well, it's very obvious from your, your answer there, Randy, that the person really comes first. And in yeah. terms of getting to know them, finding out what makes them tick, how you can build those relationships both individually and then obviously collectively to to really help them on on their path. So how right. do you support the players' academics and personal goals in addition to the athletic goals that these players have? Well, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in setting goals for, for players. And I think you can do that in several ways. I think one mistake... I think one mistake some coaches make are that when they set the team down at the beginning of a college season and they set their goal, they set goals that are unrealistic. So, you know, if there's 340 division one women's teams out there playing in the U S there's probably a large majority of those teams that set their goals as winning a national championship when realistically that's not where they are. Right. So I like our players to set, goals for the team and then individual goals for themselves. But I like those goals to be, you know, realistic. And uh, the best example for us is we took over a program here at Pitt five years ago that quite frankly was awful. They, it was 22 years old. They'd only had two winning seasons in 22 years and never made a playoff, you know, never been to the NCAA tournament. It just was a, a, in really bad shape. So it made no sense for us to come in in those first few years and set a goal of winning an, a conference championship or a, a national championship. It just wasn't going to be. But, you know, we we set goals in a different way. You know, let's let's set goals of our non-conference games. How many wins can we get out of conference? You get into conference. How many games can we win? You know, what's the what's a realistic goal for us to set? And then the players individually always have things that they want to achieve. So I think those are important. And then I think it's important that you don't just set those goals at the beginning of the year, but I think it's also that you need to constantly be reviewing those goals and talking about those goals as your season progresses. And I think sometimes as coaches, we're guilty of setting it at the beginning and then kind of forgetting about them. And then at the end, looking at it and seeing if we actually achieve those or not. Um, but 
to your point with these being student athletes first, you know, that word student comes before the athlete part in the way we talk about it. We have to understand as a coach that my primary responsibility for my players is get them uh, a degree and to make sure they're doing things academically to it's going to set them up for the rest of their life. You know, not such a small percentage of players are actually going to go on and play for a national team or play for a professional team, especially in the women's game where those opportunities aren't as big as the men's side. So obviously everything for us is making sure academically um, they're taking care of things that they have to take care of because that's what I tell mom and dad when we recruit, you know, we will set your daughter up for life with a, a great degree here from Pitt. Um, and then we balance that with the soccer piece. And then the soccer piece of it is that's obviously the part that I'm most invested in because that's my job. And um, so we're always marrying those two together. And in our conversations with the team, we're always checking on both. You know, we're talking about upcoming games and how we're preparing and working in training daily to, to get results. But along the way during the week, we're reminding them about academics and staying on top of it. Hey, we're traveling this weekend. We're going to be gone five days. Make sure you're on top of your classes before we leave town. Make sure you're getting with your academic advisor. So you just have to constantly make sure that's both of those are in front of them. Um, and our athletes today have so much more to handle. You know, they're under such different kinds of pressures than I ever was, um, especially with uh, the advent now of social media and all of those platforms where people can always be critical of them individually or critical of the team or critical of us coaches. And, you know, they, they have to deal with so much more uh, than I ever, you know, had to deal with as an athlete uh, in my college career. So it's really, um, it's really something that you have to um, stay involved with as a coach uh, to make sure you're building them up the way they need to be built up. You know, you're working with the players, you're helping to develop them as young, young women, young athletes, people first, athletes second, although they do link. But as a head coach, you'll inspire your staff, you'll inspire your players. But who inspires you and who are you accountable to? Well, just in the, the chain of command at my university, then obviously, you know, I have a... Um sport administrator that's an assistant athletic director. And then obviously my uh, overall athletic director of all the sports, our overall athletic director is, is a lady named Heather Like. And and uh, so I'm ultimately answer to her, but my sport administrator is Katie Stump and she does a, a great job. Her father was a championship state basketball coach here around Pennsylvania. So she understands sports and athletics very well and coaching in particular, because she lived in a home with a coach all of her life. Um, so, you know, I have to answer to those people and then ultimately to the president or our, we call it here at Pitt, we have a chancellor. Um, so I have to answer, you know, to our chancellor. But the day-to-day -day is pretty much Katie Stump that I would work with as my sport administrator. And, and I'm very fortunate to have a great athletic director that's very supportive of our sport and, and getting us what we need to be successful. Um, you know, one going off off subject just a little bit for you guys is one of the reasons when I mentioned this job being such you know such a bad place when I took it, I met with um, well I actually had seen where they hired Jay Vitovich 
who is, is a very good men's coach a couple of years before they hired me. So I knew some things had to have changed at Pitt the way I knew it. Uh, and so when I came on campus and met with my athletic director, Heather, you know, one of the things she said to me that really sold me was she said, Randy, I'll give you the budget. I'll give you your scholarship. I'll give you all that information. So you'll have it. She said, but what I really want you to know is I didn't hire you to give you what you have and just let you run with it. She said, you're, you're one of our only two, two coaches on staff that have won national championship. I need you to tell me what you need for this program to be successful. And I love that attitude. And that, that kind of sold me on it. And she's done everything and lived up to everything she's promised. So I have those that I answer to, uh, but those who inspire me, I'm always looking and I'm always looking to learn. So whether it be another college coach that I see what they're doing or whether it be a professional coach, well, at the, I'm a big man, you fan. So Alex Ferguson was one I, I always loved. And, and, uh, <laughs> Tell you a quick if you, if we have time I'll, I'll tell you a quick interesting story. But Bobby Clark was our men's coach when I was at Notre Dame, and I, I know you know Bobby well. And he had played for Sir Alex uh, at Aberdeen, so he had a personal relationship for 14 years. When I was at Notre Dame, we were always trying to get Fergie to come in to do. We always did a coaching symposium in the spring, but of course he couldn't leave the Premier League to come do it. Right, so he could never come. The year I left Notre Dame. He had left and stopped coaching and he came over and visited Bobby. So I missed him, but Bobby was gracious enough to get him to autograph a book for me. So um, I do at least have a, a personal autograph book from Fergie, but, you know, I always would follow him and, and, and what he did. And that inspired me to some of his methods and his beliefs. Um, I love in the modern game today, what Pep Guardiola is doing. So I'm, I'm always reading and learning um, you know, what they're doing in Spain, not just him, but throughout their youth system. So there's there's always something out there to try to make me better uh, that I'm always looking for to, to find new ideas. And and um, so, yeah, that's I think as a player, you've got players that inspire you. And as coaches, you should have coaches that inspire you as well. Oh, absolutely. And as you mentioned, Randy, obviously things change and they develop over time. So new managers come in you head head coaches come in they have new ways of doing things and and you've just mentioned yourself how you you read a lot and you keep up to date with that kind of stuff how do you incorporate new approaches and new ways to do things into your training programs yeah that's a great question and as i look back over my 30 years or so of coaching i'm a much better coach today than I was five years ago, even um, just because of learning a little bit more and, and um, finding the new trends. And so I guess the best way I can tell, answer that question is just to give you some X's and O's examples. But, you know, when I was at Notre Dame and I, and, and I think a lot of coaches in our country do it this way. And, and so I'm going to back up a little bit. I think a lot of coaches go into training and they look at it from week to week and they say, well, the game the weekend before we were poor in this area, we didn't defend well. So that next week of training, they go in and they put together some defensive training sessions and whether it's working with a back four or a back three or zonally or man to man, what, however you play they're they're working on correcting that. And they're doing that week to week. And that's the way a lot of in our coaching education, we were taught, you know, a lot, you know, is analyze and then go correct it and take it to the next week. 
But when I went back and looked at the way I was doing things a few years ago, even when I was at Notre Dame, we won two national championships. We played in five national championship games and we were eight final fours. I mean, we, we had the program rolling at Notre Dame, but even when I looked at that, we would teach our system of play, but then what we were doing week to week is we were correcting what went wrong. And I started thinking when I got into the pros, I started thinking there's, there's gotta be a better way. Like sometimes what we would teach during the week doesn't really translate to our system or our four, three, three. So what I started doing is is um, probably the last ten years or so we've we we started teaching in a way that we've we've got our game model first how we want to play, and we've got it in every aspect of the the pitch. So, for example, you know, you know, we obviously coaches divide the field up in thirds, so we have it in the thirds of how we want our game model to look, the way we actually want to play. And then what I started doing is I started saying, instead of going week to week and just trying to fix a problem that didn't go well that weekend before, let's make everything in our teaching be about our game model for a whole season. So now then if I need to work on something defending, defending didn't go well the week before, then during that next week, whatever we're doing defensively, we're doing it, but we're doing it relative to our game model. So I started taking, and, and I may be one of a few coaches that does it this way, and, and it may be right or it may be wrong, but it works for us. I started going back in these last 10 years and saying, instead of trying to, to touch base on all of these topics that I'm trying to teach, we're going to teach within our game model how we want to play. And what I'm going to do during our season is I'm going to coach out of the four moments of the game. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the four key moments in a game and we'll look at that week to week and then we teach it out of that. So the four key moments for me is clearly when you have the ball, that's one key moment, what you're doing when you have the ball. So for example, we teach that in the thirds. If we have the ball in the back third, this is what it looks like when we have the ball. If it's in the middle third, this is what it looks like if we have the ball. The final third, this is what it looks like if we have the ball. So all of our players have a clear understanding in our game model what it looks like when we have the ball. Then we also take it when the opponent has the ball because that's the other another thing that can happen in the game. They have it. So now defensively, what does it look like? What does it look like in the defensive third when they're building out? What does our forwards look, you know, look like and everything behind it? What's it look like in the middle third and then in our defensive third? So those are two things that are going to happen every game. We have the ball or they have the ball. And then the other two moments are the transition moments. It's we have it and we've lost it. Now how do what do we do, right? Or they have it, they've lost it, what do we do? So everything we've started doing in our teaching methodology is those four moments. So we look at a game, we analyze the video, we break down those things. So if it's if it's a, an issue in the back, then we're looking at it as it relates to one of the moments. Is it in our build out? We have the ball and we're turning it over. Now we got to correct that. Or is it we've lost the ball and it's in our transition, right? So we're teaching now out of those four moments of the game and we're always relating it to our game model and how it looks and how the shape should look when we have it. So that's been for me much, much more successful. We're not just going out and doing a defensive drill or going out doing an attacking drill, but it not having 
anything to do with our game model. And I think a lot of coaches make that mistake. They'll go out and they'll try to solve the problem, but they just do a drill, but they don't associate the drill with actually how they want to play, if that makes sense to you guys. So that's how we've kind of transitioned over the years and learned and got better at what we're doing. So that's the way we teach it with our players. We're always talking about our game model and we're always talking about those moments. So we want our players to have a clear understanding of what it looks like when we have a ball in a different part of the field. And then from there, we can start teaching how we want to overload areas and and those kind of things out of our game model. It's an interesting method, isn't it? You can get coaches where they coach in the moment and coach what they see, which I guess works. And the interesting part for me was it works for you there. It's a model. It's a process of elimination of actually coaching if you like the art of noticing what's actually taking place and dealing with longer term gains as opposed to short term, there are benefits and trade-offs in either or, but linked to that, Randy, a question that I have is how do you balance the need of to develop players for the short term versus long term? And what strategies do you use to ensure players are, are prepared for both? Yeah, it's just, I think the way we handle it here is I kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier with the goal setting with those players. So when the individual player has a certain goal, we don't just set goals like, um, you know, I'm a striker, so I want to score 20 goals this season. Like those are generic goals that I think, um, you know, have have a place, but it's not the end all. So when we're talking to our players, at the end of their seasons and we're analyzing their season and we're setting things up for the next season. What we're saying to them is we're looking at parts of their games as goals that we can improve. You know, you're a wide player, but your service into the box is not good. So let's, let's work. Let that be one of our goals that we improve that ability to cross the ball and, and hit different kinds of services, you know, bent balls and driven balls and lofted balls, you know, let's, let's really, spend time. So individually, we're trying to help those players almost on a daily basis with that, right? They've got their individual goals and how we want to improve them. So whether it's staying before, uh, getting out before practice and working 10 or 15 minutes with the individual player, or if it's staying after, or if they're out on their own and we've given them something they can work on, um, I think that's something for their individual development that we're always that's year round. We're trying to do that with them year round in terms of how they play within the team and and how they fit into the team. Then it's, you know, it it may be things that we're bringing them in and analyzing video and we're working on the timing of a run or we're working on the type of a run to make or how to, how to come off the front line and drop into midfield to overload that area and and give them the whys, you know, that, that, that we're asking them to do that. So I think trying to balance the individual player, what they need, but then also incorporating it into the team and and what we need from them to make the team work. You know, those things are, 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 are really ongoing for us. You know, we're constantly having our players in to, to analyze video with us. You know, we we're constantly out on the field with them uh, individually to help them get better on what they need individually. I think the balance becomes a little bit of timing and managing their time as well, because we also have to recognize I could be on the pitch with them every day for hours. I would love that. 
But I also have to understand going back to that student part that they have responsibilities in the classroom and they have projects due and exams coming up. So we have to be cognizant of that, obviously. And and then they also, as a student athlete, they they need some time that they can just have a break and and just uh, debrief and 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 kind of refuel and and mentally and, and and physically. So those are things as coaches we also have to be aware of with our players and build that into not only into their season, but build it into um, the year. You know, as you're working with them in the year. So it's it's just a constant. It's really a big. I know we all know this, but it's a big communication thing that you just have to constantly be in communication with your players to know where they are, especially mentally and especially in today's world. Well, speaking of balance, it leads nicely into my next question for you because you're absolutely someone who has to balance right now. Yeah. How do you balance your responsibilities as a college coach, but then also as an international coach, especially with the Women's World Cup? Right around the corner. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and I I'll have to I'll have to say I couldn't do it, or I wouldn't even have attempted to have taken it on if I didn't have my son working with me at Pitt. You guys know how it is working together and how beneficial that is. And Ben was with me in our first national championship when I was at Notre Dame. He was an assistant there for me for a few years, and then as most kids want to do. They want to break away from, from dad and do his own thing. And he left for seven or eight years and went down to Texas and worked in the youth system and kind of ran one of the, the best, helped run one of the best clubs down in Texas with the, on the girls' side. So he got his chance to go learn and make his mistakes and to develop his coaching as well. And then when I took this job at Pitt, I kind of convinced him to come back and help me turn this thing around, uh, which he's done a great job. But he knows exactly what I want. He knows my philosophy. He knows the way I want the game to look. Obviously, being my son, he's you know he's grown up with me all of his life around football. So I probably wouldn't even have attempted to take this on if I didn't have him here. So he's he's really run the ship these last couple of years where I've been in and out a lot with the team. He's just we've not skipped a beat because he knows exactly he's. Honestly, he's been more of a head coach than I have been. You know, I, I he's he's just keeps it going. So, and I wouldn't have probably had that confidence um, in another assistant unless it would have been an assistant I had worked with for many many years. And so, that kind of allowed me to do it. Um, my athletic director was very supportive of it, and I think knowing that he understood it and she has seen his ability as a coach to to work when I've been gone and how he's managed those things. So I, I couldn't have done it without him. And, and that's, that's the, that's the truth there. Um, fortunately, the balancing part in terms of being here hasn't been as difficult as one might think, because really the fall season for us in, at the university level, there's usually only one, maybe two international breaks at that time where it's only maybe a, an eight, an eight day window. Um, so I haven't missed a ton of, of um, being around the team here at Pitt due to being gone with Nigeria, but we have had, you know, we have had a couple of, a couple of weeks where I have missed and our players here have been great about buying in and understanding it because 
The other thing that I get to do is bring back some of the learning and the knowledge that I have uh, from the international game and bring that back to our team at Pitt. So I think they, they see the benefits of it. It opens a lot of doors from a recruiting standpoint at the international level. We've gotten one of our Nigerian players coming to us um, this summer uh, that we probably couldn't have got had I not been there. Uh, we've picked up a, a English player from Man City and a player from the Austrian national team, all through some connections I've made due to international, uh, the coaching international. So I think it's it, it does help both. It certainly makes me a better coach, and I still learn from the international game that I can bring that knowledge back uh, to Pitt. Uh, but again, I, I wouldn't have tried it if I didn't have been working here. Lovely to have that trust. Yeah. I actually had a, a question, funnily enough, in regards to the what experiences and benefits that you, that you gather from working at an international level. Uh, and vice versa, working at college and taking it into into the international level. And, but of course, you you cover that question uh, mm-hmm. or answered it quite quite clearly about the benefit. Well, you know, I think but, one thing too, Keith, on that is is um, the international level is so much more tactical, and coaches there are such a high level that um, you've got to be making changes on the fly in the game as you see. You know what they're doing. At the college level, I don't think there's uh, as much of that. You know, there's not as many experienced coaches. So tactically, you can bring some of that back to you to the collegiate level. The flip side of that is on the collegiate level, since I have more time with my team, I can really incorporate my game model and the exercises that I want to use to develop that game model because I have my kids daily here at the collegiate level and you don't have that at the international level. So I have to learn very quickly the big picture stuff that I'm doing with my college team and take that to Nigeria at the international level because I've only got them for 10 days at a time with a couple of matches in there. And so I don't have that kind of time to work with them. So I've got to find those things that I found that worked at the collegiate level uh, with the game model and the teaching of it, it, it's helped me um, best use my time, the limited amount of time I have at the international level. So yeah, there's a lot of a crossover that I can learn from both. What do you think are the biggest differences between coaching college level players and international players? Well, I think the international players that I have, they're all pros or they're going to be pros. There's still a, a few of them that are playing, playing in the league in Nigeria that's not really a professional league. Um, but their ambitions are all, you know, their 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 purpose is they're all going to go play pro. I think the difference with the college game is we, we're now getting, our program is, is now a top 20 team in the country. So we're getting top players to come. So I think a large majority of our players in college do want, want to go pro and have ambition. But we do have some players that, want to just take the degree and once they finish they're ready to go change the world and in their field and and there's nothing wrong with that so i think that's probably the biggest difference is making sure i understand that not every one of my college players are in this to go pro so i have to balance what we're doing with them understanding that their target is is quite different than what my international players' targets are. And with Nigeria, and I would I would guess too, Keith, that each country is probably a little bit different, but 
for Nigeria in particular, being the kind of country it is and the economics of the country and everything else, this is the way out for the Nigerian players is to go hopefully make a national team where they get the visibility so they can get a contract and go play somewhere professionally because a lot of these players don't have the educational background to get a degree and their life be changed for that. You know, whereas our kids here in the U.S., the education is so important. They're all going to get a degree and they all have a fallback if the pro doesn't work. And with the Nigerian players, they don't they don't have that. You know, this this is kind of their one way out. And then they've got to ride it as long as they can. So there's a different there's a different cultural aspect of that as well. Randy, you've talked earlier on about the person and getting to know the person and, and working around the person and then obviously developing that into the team area. How do you approach coaching players from different cultures and different backgrounds? Yeah. You know, this is the second time I've done it. I took on Trinidad and Tobago uh, in 2014 as we were trying to qualify for the World Cup and uh, and now Nigeria. It's what I learned. It was different. I, I coached also in the U.S. I coached our U21s. It's now the U23s. But when I was doing it, it was our U21 national team. And obviously, you know, they're all American players and Culturally, we all understand each other. So there was no issue there. But I learned a lot when I got to Trinidad and had to learn a lot about that comp, that culture and understand that a lot of these players, they don't have the resources that our U.S. kids had. Uh, a lot of these players didn't have the money to catch a taxi. They call it a, a taxi. It's a, it's a van shuttle system, but to just to get to practice. So there was days we would train and half the team's not there because – some of the players didn't have the money to to catch a ride to practice. Um, and it's similar in Nigeria. So what I learned is, is I had to really try to embrace as much of the culture as I could. So when I got in to Nigeria, for example, those first few months, it was probing and asking a lot of questions of our players and just trying to find out as much about the culture, you know, as I could. You know, one of the things, for example, I know uh, in in Nigeria, they feel like African football is different than anywhere else. It's it was something that was always kind of thrown up in my face. Well, you don't understand African football, right? It's 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 different, and I'm going. It's different in terms of the competition within Africa, but the game itself is still the game. Whether you're playing in Africa or you're playing in Europe or whatever, but culturally. Uh, I had to get to understand a little bit about the players individually, you know, what, what drives these players, what motivates these players. And it's different in Nigeria than what motivates the player in the U S you know, the U S kids growing up, like I mentioned, they're growing up to get a college scholarship so they can, can get a degree in an education. And then some of them may move on pro in Nigeria. They're not growing up playing to go to the university. They're growing up playing to, to go pro so they can make money and take care of their families. We had one young lady that I was trying to recruit. And when I first got there and I didn't know enough about the culture and we got two or three months into recruiting her to come to Pittsburgh. And, you know, it hit home because as we started getting down the process a little bit, she finally came and fessed up to me and she said, coach, I, I can't read. I, you know, I, I can't read. And it just, I don't know that I know a single person in the U.S. 
And I know there are some that can't read, but I don't know that I know. Working in an academic environment, you just take it for granted that everybody can read. So not only was she not going to be able to come to the college in the U.S., but it had to make me think that when I'm showing scouts up on the screen and I've got written comments and I've got, you know, formations and I've gotten bullet points, I now had to realize there may be others in the room that don't know how to read either. So my presentation has to be different, you know, and I have to go through it. I can't expect them to. So just little things like that, that turn into to big things, you know, uh, a lot of them are supporting their families and, um, you know, some don't have electricity. You know, one of the girls we recruited to pit, uh, is coming and doesn't even own a computer. Everything she does is off of her phone. So just these little differences in, in the cultures and what they have versus what they don't have. You, you've really got to, you've really got to grasp and get a handle. And then even just some of the things culturally about, like religious, like our, our team in Nigeria is very uh, faith-based team. And there's certain things they do before meals and after meals and, you know, with singing and praying as a team. And, you know, you had to learn that you've got to, I've got to plan those kind of times in. If I'm on a schedule, I have to plan in 15 minutes because they're going to do that. I, I can't just come in and say, hey, no, we, we got to go into the room and start doing video analysis. You know, I have to, I have to allow for some of the cultural things that, that they believe in and do. So it's just getting to know the, the culture the best you can. And this coaching gig is pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, uh, I, I guess it's easy. Uh, if you're willing to always stay open-minded and always learn, then it's easy. I think that day we think we got it down and we know it. I, I, if I ever get to that point, then I need to stop, you know, because it's uh, as much as I can help young coaches learn through some of my experiences I can still learn even at my age and, and the experience I have. So if you keep an open mind to that, I think you'll always do a great job. It is a very simple game that we do like to make complex. Uh, but there are so many, as you guys well know, because you, you've been in it all your life. There's so many complex pieces that goes into it. It's not just going out and, and running a practice. Exactly. I have a little saying, uh, I may have heard it, I've certainly sits comfortable with me, is that the more and more I think I know, the more and more I find out I don't. That's right, yeah, that, you're right. You know, lived experiences and, you know, yeah. you can go on the coaching courses and you get the X's and O's, but I think the art is knowing where to use that skill set and equally there's a lot more to coaching than the X's and O's and players on the pitch, which is what you've alluded to here very, very clearly. Uh, having the courtesy to find out about religion, about the time and equally. And, and right. you know, how many of us are out there and take it for granted that players can read? That's right. No, no question about it. So, look, what advice would you would you have for, you know, for a young woman yeah. who, who aspired to play college soccer or even become a coach? Yeah. Well, I, I'm always, as far as players, when, when I have people ask me for that advice, I always say this, the game to me is, um, as a youth player, is all about learning and trying to become an expert in the fundamentals, right? The skills are always going to be the most important part of the game. And, 
you know, um, interesting. I went out and watched my grandson play uh, an under eight game last night. And, you know, the difference in there is, um, you know, the one kid that's more athletic that can outrun everybody, then you're going to win. So if, if you understand that it's, it's a process and it's important to learn the skills to begin with, the rest will sort itself out as you get older. So I, I always tell the young players here, don't, don't go to a team just because they're a winning team. Don't go to, you know, don't, um, don't play one way because that's what got you through at under 10 or under 12, you know, learn to play the the game and the skills that are involved. Cause you get older, it all evens out. So I would always tell these players, my advice is get with a coach that can help develop you. Don't worry about the wins and losses, get in an environment where you've got a coach that takes a genuine interest in your development. And, and to me, it's all about skill. No matter how you want to play, uh, no matter what formation you want to play, uh, no matter whether you play direct or indirect or a possession-based team or a counter-attacking team, whatever your team style is going to be as you get older, uh, the skills still are what's going to get you through. And the better you are uh, at that, the better of a player you're going to be in, in whatever system. Uh, but that's kind of my advice to the players going into it is, is get yourself in the best environment that's going to develop you. Put the winning as the second thing don't don't let that be the the driving force then um you know for coaches to me uh there's so much for young coaches to learn now but i think the one really big thing for a young coach is the communication part this is where i think i've had my most success is i feel like i'm i'm good at having an idea of how i want to play i know what i know my philosophy of how i want my football to look and I have this picture in my mind. I can tell you what the game looks like and the way it should be played. And I think I've had a very good um, ability to um, relate that to my teams where they understand and they buy in. Because to me, a coach has to get their team to buy in. If they don't, it doesn't matter how good you are. If you can't get the team to buy into your way of thinking, you won't be successful, um, no matter how much knowledge you have. So I think the communication piece is really, really important. My degree, for example, is in education. And I alluded to that earlier, where I knew I wanted to, to coach. And the only way to, to make money back then was to go into high school. So I knew I had to teach. But what I really found when I got the education degree is once I actually got into coaching in football is we're really teachers. That's what we are. We just, we have a whistle, right? That instead of a piece of chalk in a, in a classroom, you know, I, I have a whistle and, and I'm a teacher on the field. So that, that communication part and being able to relay it to your players is where the teaching comes in. And then I'm still very old school in this belief. I'm still one of those believers that you do your teaching, your coaching during the week. And then on game day, it's still the player's game. You know, it doesn't mean I don't make an adjustment or a tactical change here or have to give a little bit of a piece of information. But I don't think, you know, me yelling and screaming and trying to direct their every move on the sideline is, is the way to go. So do your teaching during the week. Um but I think young coaches need that communication piece. They need to have a philosophy. They need to be able to communicate how they want that to, to be played to their players. Um, 
and then be think of it as your teacher you know that the, the the pitch is your classroom and and teach don't too many coaches i see go out and they run an activity or a drill whatever word you use for it. They, they they put it in and they run the exercise but they don't coach it you know they don't they don't teach they're not coaching it and anybody can do that the better coaches are able to pick out what they want to they want to teach and and can teach it in their practices so i think that's vitally vitally important i think it's important for young coaches to get around coaches and learn get a mentor get to coaching schools observe go out and continue to learn get on the internet there's so much out there now that you can learn from the internet but always be educating yourself i think is really important so those would be some of the the key pieces of advice and and i think the other thing for a young coach to know too is have enough belief in yourself that you'll get to the end point and i think sometimes young coaches try a system or formation or they have a belief of how they want to play and then if they run through a stretch of some losses they want to change you know they 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 change the system or they change their thinking and i think you just have to understand that it's it's a process you know rarely are you going to walk into a team and make it happen right off the bat if you're implementing something new and different so believe in yourself and believe that uh if you put the time in in time you will get them to where you want you know where you want to be so those would be some of my my advices to to the young players and coaches randy on behalf of my dad and i we want to thank you for your time today really really good obviously lots of knowledge and wisdom and and gold is shared in there today and very very clear and your ability to share messages is um is exceptional so again Thank you from my dad and I. And then I think on another note, you're obviously got a, a long flight coming up. Shortly. That's right. so, um, with that being the case, we we wish you the best of luck on your trip down under with uh, with the national team, with the Nigerian national team, with the World Cup. We'll be avidly following you in that process and, and obviously hoping for the best. And then... When you finally arrive back stateside, good luck with your your fall season. There you go. Well, thank you guys for having me. Uh, great to to reconnect with you and uh, keep doing what you're doing because that's also important to the development of the game. This this is this is I love seeing you guys do this so other coaches can listen in and and um, hopefully pick up as you said at the very beginning. If you pick up one little thing. Uh, then it was worth the time to listen. So thank you guys for what you do. And and uh, again, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.